the market that they play in, you know, Bill Gross, like, like it wasn't there before. Bill Gross arrived on the scene when we were still keeping bonds in vaults and clipping coupons using scissors. That's Mary Childs talking about the man who is once referred to the Bond King, which is also the title of her well-researched book released this year here in 2022. So who was Bill Gross? Who was the guy who learned to take risks in college while scalping basketball tickets? Or the guy who learned to count cards in Las Vegas? Who exactly is a man once named by Morningstar the investment manager of the decade? And how was Bill Gross able to see around corners and make a lot of money during the financial crisis during a time of bailouts and bank failures? Mary Childs, a co-host and correspondent of NPR's Planet Money, knows these answers. And that's our topic on this edition of CFO Bookshelf. Later in this conversation, you hear how many times I've listened to Mary's book, The Bond King, and how many times I've read it, and you're going to hear why. But yet, I'm still not for sure how I'd break the ice with Bill Gross if I ever met him. So I asked Mary... For some advice, two ideas. Bill, do you prefer the Bond King or Secretariat? Number two, Bill, Mary mentioned you hit a hole-in-one in the book, but no one saw it. Does it count? So Mary, you've got to help me out. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So both of these, I feel like strategically could use some some workshopping because so he's not going to respond well to anything that might be perceivable as nagging even if that's not what your heart means so i would lean out of referencing any of those 2014 articles i think the um the secretariat reference will probably get you in a trap that way the hole in one one is interesting because he likes the kind of frustrating aspect of golf and if you're a big golfer i think he could bro down with you on golf so that that's a that's a reasonable opening my only hesitation is that um i th- i think that's probably a good one i think that will work um i feel like the the strongest would be like hey man what's going on with the 10 year like like how are you seeing like what's your read on the the you know Phillips curve. Like I think the, if you get in, it's always been kind of my my thinking that like he just wants to talk about the market. He loves the market. He thinks the market's so interesting. So that would be that would be my counsel. But also golf, I think, counts. And after reading your book, I I'm nodding in agreement. And speaking of Bill Gross, um, <laughs> this is called Theater of the Mind. So I'm ho- only Mary can see these, but I've got mm-hmm. a book. This is called uh, A Random Walk. Uh, Oh, classic. Yes. Now, this is the 1954 third edition of uh, The Intelligent Investor, Benjamin Graham. Look at that font. It's beautiful. I'm going to skip William J. Uh, O'Neill. Here's a guy I really like, and we're going to mention him in a minute, Peter Lynch. Uh, We've had Adam Mead on the show. This is the only anthology of all the Berkshire Hathaway trades up until about a couple of years ago. But I'm a big fan of Hagstrom, if you want to study Buffett. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to skip this one, but Joel Greenblatt, needs, he, he's great. Now, Tony Robbins, this is, I wanted to hate this book when I started. And I thought, this book is genius. So he talks to a lot of different money people. Mm-hmm. But if you, look, if you look in the index, uh, if you look in the back, there's no mention of Bill Gross. See, it's, it's not inadequate. It's, it's inadequate. That book falls short. 
So the, have you read Capital Ideas Evolving? Not yet. Not yet. That's a that's a big wreck and builds in that one. So the reason I bring up these books is what's missing from my stack. Oh wow. Is this like is there a right answer just to get my bearings here? There is a right answer. You're, you're gonna say, Mark, there's nothing in there about bonds. It's all stocks. It's all about- I mean, it was heavy on the Warren Buffett, and I I had to suspend my personal judgment. People do love that guy. I get it. Um, I came from derivatives coverage, CDS coverage, where he is well-known but less beloved because he talked a lot of smack about CDS while spraying the street, as they say. So, um, you know, that market didn't appreciate the rhetoric. Um, and honestly, that stance has been hard for me to, like, move away from. So he's not my guy, but I get it. Everybody, He's everybody else's guy. And yeah, stocks. What are you doing with all these stocks? Well, and I think that's... I think it's a good read, a great read, because we're going to hear about someone we should study, you know, business students, lifelong learners. I was going to ask you the best analogy. And I would, I bet if I were interviewing, so like Adam Mead, he might say, oh, he, he's the, uh, the Warren Buffett of bond trading. And I think that's an incomplete analogy. Mm. You can't even say Peter Lynch. I think if you start getting into Bogle, in Vanguard, uh-huh. you're starting to get warm because Bill, and I'm not going to steal your thunder, Bill created really a brand new industry, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually think that that he pairs, his story pairs really nicely with Jack's because they, and they had this like lifelong respect for each other and, and spoke very highly of each other. And I just, I find that kind of heartwarming, but it is this not only empire creation, right? It, it It's not just that it's world creation. It's this entire industry, this entire market is shaped in, in their image where it, it wasn't really there before. And I think that's kind of radical to think about now. Like, you know, we all love and, and admire our bond market heroes and people like Howard Marks, who's like so smart and so good at this stuff and, you know, freely publishes his thoughts and all that. And there, there are many like that. But I think like the market that they play in, you know, Bill Gross, like, like it wasn't there before. Bill Gross arrived on the scene when we were still keeping bonds in vaults and clipping coupons using scissors, like it was arts and crafts time. So I think like, I think that's a really apt analogy because we we very much live in the world that they made and the world that they made is oftentimes in their image. And, you know, that's sometimes that's good. And, and sometimes that's less good. Most of our listeners, CEOs, CFOs, other financial professionals, if you don't mind, if I can ask for forgiveness up front, instead, okay. of, instead of talking Bill Gross right off the bat, mm-hmm. I want to talk about the business model of uh, investment firms, if, if mm-hmm. that's okay. I want to talk a little bit about the, the world that PIMCO operates in. Yeah. And usually when I think of a business model, you think of a business model, you're probably thinking we need to have a, a great product. But I want to start with maybe the the people at the top, the CEO, mm-hmm. the CFO, the COO. But in this world, who's more important, the CEO or the chief investment officer? And you're smiling. Well, because it becomes so dramatically crucial, this question, to the the health and functioning of the firm. I think, you know, ideally... In in the early days, in their kind of platonic ideal structure, PIMCO had it so that it was a, quote, three-legged stool, right. where it was divided equally, they said, between business, client services, and trading, market stuff, investing. And 
the fact that these were clearly delineated, I mean, that part of it arose from just their personalities. It's what they liked. It's what they were, right. you know, drawn to do and felt they were best at and more and they were more interested in. So they all kind of naturally gravitated towards those roles, the, the three founders. But then they had the consultant Peter Drucker come in and talk to them about, you know, their company, what they should do, how they should structure themselves. And he was like, this is actually great. You are on to something here because by keeping these roles cleanly delineated and by doing, you know, incredibly above above market work on these things, you are able to distinguish yourself because at the time client services, this is also kind of radical to try to consider, but client services was a meh development. You know, it was kind of like they it wasn't yet the case that that people in client services had ever really managed portfolios and could explain them lucidly and could tell you really what they're doing with the money. So that, you know, the fact that Jim Buzzy had been a portfolio manager and had experience in the market and could translate it and was such a good translator, that was a huge edge for PIMCO. So those kind of those staying in their lanes enabled them to do um, more competitive work and, and bring that edge. The types of people who work at PIMCO, and you could say this for any investment house, you say the environment seemed to attract one particular breed of human and those weird, intense, paranoid men, and then parenthetically, and the odd woman seem mm-hmm. to thrive mm-hmm. in direct inverse proportion to the depth of their emotional problems. Is that the way it is at every uh, organization <laughs> like a PIMCO? I mean, it depends on how you define like a PIMCO. Like I think across investment management, no. I think that a lot of people who work at other investment management companies do not have this experience, do not feel like they are in a culture of psychological torment. Um, And I think that, you know, one thing one thing that was kind of uh, reassuring in reporting that out, you know, it's really hard because I didn't like pour seven years into researching the other investment managers. So to some extent, I'm like, what if they are all like this? And I just don't know. Um, that being said, like I've reported on other asset managers to some extent, and I'm, I'm pretty, you know, well versed in in a lot of them. And and I talked to a lot of Pimco people who went from Pimco to another place, and they were like, "Oh my god, my life just improved! Like I'm so much happier. Things are better." So I I do feel like based on that information and the kind of you know less deep but still substantial reporting I've done on other institutions, it is it does seem to be uh, separate and apart from from the general culture. Now there are like you know, you hear about the hedge fund managers who slam down a phone and shatter it on the trade floor, or like there are certainly big personalities that we all know and love that, um, that are maybe, uh, comparable. But I do think as, especially on like the mutual fund side, I think this is a bit, um, out there. I am so old. My first mutual (laughs) fund 20th century based out of Kansas city. I think it became American funds invested in fidelity, uh, not Mm -hmm. with Vanguard. So, Every firm I mentioned, big, huge. With PIMCO, they start out with $10, $12 million uh, at the very beginning, and now about $2 trillion, one of your numbers yeah. that, that you mentioned. That's like eighth largest if you look at GNP of nations. Can I, can I, re, can <laughs> yeah. I read another quote or two uh, from your book? Bill says, it will not be the size itself that brings down this firm. And then you go mm-hmm. on to say, PIMCO is less likely to explode externally from the ingestion of too many assets than it is to implode internally from mm-hmm. a self-induced ulcer. That was brilliant. I stopped yeah. and reread that. So I keep it's thinking sure. big is impossible to keep growing, but that's not the case, is it? I know, right? So this is an interesting thing where PIMGO started small, like you're saying, 
but so did the bond market or the active bond market. And I think there's an interesting, you know, I think a lot about how they had this swagger throughout, and this is kind of Bill, where they they were projecting this influence and, oh, you need our information flow. Like, you know, we don't need to treat the street nice like everybody else we, because they need our information. And that was the stance before PIMCO became the enormous powerhouse that it that it did become. And I think that that's interesting. But but it is true, too, that the bond market grew almost in proportion or with PIMCO. So like they were always kind of big relative to that bond market. So, yeah, like they were kind of dogged with these questions of like, when are you going to be too big? When is it too much? For the duration of their existence. <laughs> and the the speech you're referencing is from 2003 which is like well before they doubled. You know, they doubled in the aftermath of the financial crisis for having done so well in it. And I think that that um it's just telling that that not only is there always going to be a cohort of naysayers of people saying, "Oh, you're doing it wrong. There's no way this is sustainable. This growth is fine for now, but you can't keep it going." Like all of that is just going to be constant and and a chorus that you just have to kind of ignore to a certain extent. Um that being said, I guess there comes a point when you can't ignore it or when it is true. So knowing when that change happens, I think is important. So turning our attention to the Bond King, I loved his origin story, right? which, which goes all the way back. I, I, I wouldn't say it was when he was doing the blackjack thing in Las Vegas. I would even go back to his college days at Duke. I, I will say one thing, and I want to tease you a little bit about it. The, the, the part I could have uh, gone without was – the officer who picks up the scalp from oh, his I'm head so after an auto accident. I'm teasing you. No, and, it's and, gross. Yeah. And, and then they get it sewed back on. But other than that, his origin story was fascinating. Do, yeah. do you agree? Oh, completely. And I think it's fun to watch the the elements of it that get incorporated into the legend and what sticks with people. Um, and I wrote a little, this is a little bit in the book, but it is like, you know, the Vegas chapter where he goes and counts cards there is not a pension manager in the world that didn't love that story. I feel like, like just based on my, like they, that, that was great. And, and it really helped to kind of seed this idea of him as this genius, as someone who can see around corners and who can, you know, anticipate risk and anticipate the next thing. And, you know, a lot of that's Ed Thorpe, who I just have the utmost, utmost respect for. I think I've, you know, he's just an incredible thinker and an incredible person and inspired Bill so much. And they're actually great friends. But yeah, that that origin, I mean, he there are so many stories about what he did in college, like his little entrepreneurial activities that, you know, like scalping tickets to the basketball game. He just chanced it every time. And it worked out, I think, three out of four times. But he was like, that was dumb risk. I don't want to take dumb risk. I want to take good risk. I want to know that I'm going to that this is going to work out for me, that this isn't just going to be like nervous you know, could go either way and I don't have an edge. I want to have an edge. Um, so these kind of little sparks that you see where he's just, you know, a regular young whippersnapper, but trying things out and experimenting. I think that's super fun. Yeah. When I read that section on the card counting, I had, I had to go back. Thorpe, I remember that name, Fortune's Formula. I'd read that book a couple of years earlier. And then you mentioned that he got to meet him in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't you be love to be a fly on the wall of how that conversation went? Can you even Honestly, imagine? I know. I know. And they're both such um they're both they they think in very similar ways to some extent. They're both very like causal direct. They they see relationships and and extrapolate. So there's a lot of commonality. 
But it also, I, yeah, I would just love to be a fly on the wall. I, I mean, they're both fascinating people. So having them in the same room, I can't imagine the room doesn't implode, but it doesn't. I'm going to let you pick your pick. So as you, as we look at some of the trading that is addressed in the book, think of inflection points. What may be one of your favorite stories of an investment mm-hmm. they may have made? And that may not be the right question, maybe the right strategy. I, I thought cornering the market was very mm-hmm. impressive. Uh, I personally think being able to see around corners when they they saw what was going to be happening with this financial crisis we had. Absolutely, yeah. But in terms of an inflection point, your favorite strategy that you brought to us as us readers, do, do you have a, one that stands out? Usually I say the Ginny May 1983 CDR trade. That one is just, it was a bear to report because it was complicated and multi-year and multi-leg and multi-everything. And the people who know what happened, I mean, I had, it was truly like, you know, the parable of the blind men feeling the elephant. This is in the book too. It's just like, it's it, you, you get pieces that don't seem to match up and then you have to kind of wrangle them into cooperation. So that was a, that was a fun one. And it's, it's reflective too, of how early PIMCO was to mortgages and derivatives. So there's like a lot embedded in that story. Um, but while you were talking, I was thinking, you know, I really did have fun with that, um, treasury cornering allegation, um, <laughs> where, you know, in the early aughts, there was a scarcity of a certain, uh, subset of treasury notes and they, PIMCO figured this out. It ended up being like, you know, they, they a play on the cheapest to deliver. And it sort of is a parallel to that CDR trade from 1983, but it had its own, you know, fresh modern twist. And what I liked about this was, Thinking about, you know, staying in your lane, thinking about having different job roles and priorities that are delineated for each person, the person in charge of that trade is in charge of simply that trade. They're not in charge of the regulatory risk or the like brand risk. They're not in charge of any of that. They literally could not care less about those things. Like all they are supposed to do is maximize returns. And so they're supposed to do anything in their power to maximize returns. And if someone has a problem with that, that's their problem. And, you know, if that person is like, you know, legal counsel at PIMCO, at some point that becomes a conversation, right? There, you know, that will probably hinder the ability to maximize returns at all costs. But I do think that that's an interesting, you know, and we've structured our society in this way where there's not a holistic view. It is very kind of individualized and pocketed. And and that person not being responsible for those other things has ripple effects and has, you know, behavioral effects. You can see it, it play out. And that was really fun because I felt like I really, once I, once I cleared that, that framing, once I understood that framing, I was like, oh, I see, I get what happened now. So that wasn't very enjoyable. Critical point to make is he is not an egomaniac. So he's one more than he's lost, at least up through 08, mm-hmm. 09. He would be the first to tell you that I had a lot going for me. Yeah, I think yes and no. I mean, he was always and and remains, I think, um, I think he would say insecure, even as he's achieved so much. I think he's motivated by this like eternal fundamental insecurity, which as a manager gets translated suboptimally, right? People extrapolate from that and run with that and also think you're kind of a jerk when you're just like insecure. You're just like scared and shy and nervous. And I think that, you know, yes, he had so many achievements and he he did so much and he was a billionaire and isn't it isn't it enough yet? Um, I think it, it's never quite enough. So it's impossible to say that like there ever came a point when he could relax, I think. 
Is that coming from a person who wants fame more than money than and power? I think so. I mean, it's hard to say that that's necessarily the end point because certainly I can think of other people who want power and who want money and for whom it also doesn't seem to be enough. So like there is maybe never enough. So I think um, maybe that um, isn't the limiting fact or unlimiting factor in this case. But yeah, Spill Gross's favorite interview question, money, fame, or power, pick one. And he was always fame. We just interviewed a guy named Jeffrey Marks. Uh, and by the way, a fellow writer, um, he was the youngest person to ever win the Pulitzer. I think he still is at the age of 23. It was in uh, sports reporting. But he wrote a book, and then there's a heavy football theme to it. And we got to talking about uh, coaching trees and mm-hmm. then life trees. So I've got that on my brain still because we just talked to Jeffrey a few weeks ago. So the question I have, I know Bill created a lot of wealthy men and women. There are a lot of yes. millionaires because of Bill Gross. I think that's right. But coaching tree, acolytes. Yeah. Are there... Many are there people who can say I'm a Bill Gross disciple, acolyte. What's that tree? Yeah, I think I think there are people. There are a lot of people who traded alongside him, who invested alongside him, who learned from him, who do still have the utmost respect for him. You know, you especially like I feel like it's more in the treasury market where people saw just that he was an above and beyond good trader. Uh, like execute, like he he just had that feel for the market. That's I think hard to teach, um, and and maybe you just like learn by doing and by watching. And I think that that that's probably that's the impression that I got from these folks. So and I think too, like it was a hands on culture. So no matter, I get the sense that you know it was hierarchical, but at the same time, if you had a good idea and you were willing to like muscle in there, I think you very much could get that. Mm, mentorship is so not the right word but <laughs> but on the flip side you know yes so there is this like school of investing thought and and approach and trading and there's this reverence for bill and i think that's all very earned on the flip side when you say coaching i think management you know i think of corporate culture and i think of all the ways in which that can go wrong and i think bill was pretty deeply uninterested in that stuff and didn't really view it as his world as maybe even his responsibility you know sometimes he'd be like oh pimco's my you know i'm i'm leading i'm a leader yada yada but i feel like it was always a bit half hearted and he really just wanted to be investing and finding the best ideas and finding the best ways to invest and the best trades and that means the culture like i almost feel like he abdicated from from managing the culture in that way and which leaves it to the other people, of course, which is not always good. And again, he's this like insecure, driven, ambitious person. And those traits can really have negative second derivatives, right? And from there, you know, they did have a guy come in and do a kind of review of the culture. And he was like, I mean, he it's a bit of an exaggeration to say that he ran away screaming. But he was just like, I, I don't know what to tell you. This is incredibly toxic. Like you have a lot of work to do. And trying to get Bill Gross to change his ways. So, yeah, I think there were, over the many years, there were people who grew up with him, came up with him, helped build the company with him, who he respected a lot. And when you had those people cycling out, when those people left, the people that he really feel felt like he could respect and who he trusted to tell him the truth and who could kind of play with his personality in an effective way. Once those people were gone, it was kind of like just Bill. And then there was like a, like a gulf between him and the next person. And if 
he doesn't respect you, you know it. And if he doesn't want to listen to you, you know it. And that's just a really, that can be really toxic. And I think it was. And that kind of leads to my next question. And I think you know what I'm going to ask. The last part of the book was just a little bit sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a little bit of a Shakespearean tragedy. I think that's uh, right. That, that, that starting to reveal itself. Well, you talked about the three-legged stool. I think one of the turning points, and you kind of have to piece this together, Bill Thompson was mm-hmm. one of those legs of this. I think when he leaves, that that was a void. I don't know if it ever, it ever ever got filled, but I just want to read a, my short list here. Uh, there's a time where the total return, which is Bill's uh, baby, uh, didn't start providing returns. The paranoia that you've you've mentioned, the El Arian. Did I pronounce uh, that correct? That's right. Okay, uh, his exit, which was it a voluntary exit? Is it force exit? Uh, what happened at Janus and then George Soros pulling funds away from it, and then the divorce. So the question I have, yeah. which may be a, somewhat redundant, uh, Bill Campbell consider one of the most notorious business coaches ever, mainly if you're on the West Coast, Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Was there a Bill Campbell type person? And you're smiling. I think I know the answer. Did Bill have a Bill Campbell type person in his life? Would ha- have made a difference in maybe the last chapters yeah. of his professional? It's such, it's such a good question. And I think... To a large extent, you're right. Bill Thompson was that person. But the question almost, I feel like that presupposes that he's going to receive information from a coach and accept it and act on it. And that's true if he respects them. I can't see someone coming in as a corporate coach and having Bill Gross. Like, that's just like, Bill only respects PL. Bill only respects good trade ideas. Bill only respects you showing up in the bond market and proving to him that you know what you're doing and that you make money for clients and then he'll listen to you. And like that is, you know, Bill Thompson had kind of this magic touch where he was able to communicate with Bill and and, and gain his respect. I think in part because he came from Solomon and that was, you know, an immense like Bill respects Solomon. And I think just he had this kind of playful quality. It still does you know, alive and well, but like has this playful quality that, that enabled him to diffuse really tense situations. Um, there's this one moment where like Bill Gross said to Bill Thompson, you're a regular gray Davis in a big meeting and everyone like tensed up because it was meant as an insult. And like a person who's not Bill Thompson's going to not take that well is going to like record that in their list of sins, you know, and be mad about it later. Bill Thompson was like, I'm going to handle this. He's just like, how am I going to, and he just burst out laughing. And everyone's like, oh, thank God. So like who can do like the ability to rise above the like gravitational pull of pettiness of like Bill wanted Bill Gross wanted Bill Thompson to like respond badly to that. Right. But he didn't. And so Bill Bill Gross. And I think this probably contributes to Bill Gross's respect for Bill Thompson. But like the fact that he could just navigate that so adeptly, I think illustrates like that he was very rare that Bill Gross trusted him and could listen to him, but also how impossible it is to find another person like that. And they did try to consult Bill Thompson in the final hours of the uh, kind of disastrous 2014. So they were, you know, making these pilgrimages to Bill Thompson's office to be like, what should we do? And I don't know. I mean, if there had been someone, I just, you know, because Bill viewed himself as outside of the management world in a way, 
like as outside he was you know just the people stuff wasn't really supposed to be his thing and because maybe because they cleanly delineated those lanes um i just i struggled to see it going better than it did you presumably do a fair amount of public speaking especially since this book came out in yeah. earlier in the year so my my nosy question and i've asked this Uh-oh. before and i love this question when you get done speaking to a group of people What's the one question that just keeps coming up over and over where they're asking you either something about Bill Gross or PIMCO? What's that one question that just seems to keep popping up when you're doing presentations in a live environment? I think the number one question live and like online is, was he any good? There's this kind of bifurcated response to his legacy or kind of view of him in the world, which is, both that he was this great king, he was this amazing trader, yada, yada, but also that he wasn't. And I think it's so interesting that that there's no real nuance there. It's just like he was amazing or he's terrible. The beneficiary of a, you know, multi-decade bond rally, you know, he was the beneficiary of a coin flip. I think that I understand that. I don't, I'm not a big like counterfactual person because I think it's um not possible. We don't know. <laughs> I don't know the counterfactuals and I'm not that interested in like building hypotheses just for fun. Um, so so we will never truly know the answer to this. But I do think like, yeah, Bill Gross's strategies perform best in a rising, uh, falling rate environment. So like to some extent, we'll never know. And to some extent, sure, he was the beneficiary of a coin flip. I think he'll be the first person to tell you that. But also there were hundreds of other bond managers who did not outperform, including in the down periods, right? Like you had moments where you could have, you know, made a shot at it. And and Bill did perform well in the uh, financial crisis, which was famously a downturn. So, eh, but that's definitely the number one, far and away, the number one question that I get is, was he any good? I was going to say, in my opinion, again, I don't have your level of expertise, maybe like a flea on an elephant, but <laughs> I look at that's what terrible. he did based on what you wrote. This guy had this uncanny ability to see around corners yeah, and then act on them without gambling. Yeah. He, I mean, there was some risk taking, but I, I, whoever asked that question who thinks he wasn't good. I, I disagree. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm sold. I believe that this guy was really, really phenomenal. A uh, couple more questions. I know you're a very, very busy person. Um, I didn't tell you this up front. So when your when your book came out, uh, this is a book right up my alley. I love books like these. I love narrative nonfiction. So I did listen to the book when it, I mean, when it first came out, I listened to it and then Amazing. I read it, but that, yeah. that was like several months ago. And then I get, yeah. and then I get this follow-up from you on LinkedIn. It's like, Mark, do my publicist ever reach back out to you? And I think, oh boy, if I, if I'm going to get to do this, I'm going to re-listen to it again and reread it. So you've got your mouth open. I have some intellectual capacity invested in your book. So you've two, read it like three times no, now? Well, two listens and two reads. Two listens. Four times. Yeah. Mark. So having said that, I think I, ha- I can, I'm qualified to ask this question as okay. a customer of your book. <laughs> Thank you. Two years from now, three years from now, five years from now, what do you want me and other readers to remember and take away down the road. Ooh. One thing that was the hardest thing about reporting this book was there's, especially in the latter half, 
and the later the the kind of last chapters, the narrative kind of starts to bifurcate where it's like, according to Gross, X, according to a lot of other people in the room, Y. And it's the same moment. And that was very hard to report. It was very hard to write. You know, at times some people wouldn't talk to me. At other times, people just flagrantly disagreed on like what should have been an objective observation. Like all of these things that make reporting difficult and also kind of fun. Um, so collecting all of that and and kind of wrangling it into the text and onto the page was really challenging. But to me, that's like the most human part of the story. Like, oh, he's this great man. He built this great firm. Congratulations. But this is where you remember that he's a person and that everybody else in that room is a person too. And they're all bringing all their stuff, right? Like they're all bringing their insecurities, their paranoia, their their anxiety, their anger. And I think, you know, that's part of what started to fall apart, right? Was that Bill Gross was showing up more as a person than as a professional towards the end and couldn't seem to shake that. And like, I get that. Like, haven't we all been there? I just find that so emotionally resonant. And like, yeah, he's this great legend, but like me too, man. Like, I, <laughs> I don't know. So that like... The thing that I that I that really has stuck with me and that I think I wanted to communicate through the writing is that, you know, not necessarily that objective truth doesn't exist, but that uh, that objective truth is still subjective to some extent and that you and I can have the exact same experience and, and come away totally, you know, with totally different accounts of it. And it's been gratifying to hear people who were involved or who were nearby during all of these events read these and be like, oh. I didn't know that's what he was thinking. That does make sense now. I didn't know that he took it this way. I thought he took it that way. Oh, we meant it this way. We meant it that way. And I think that as a writer, that makes me really happy. You know, it makes me sad as a person because it's like, if only someone, if we had all been actually speaking the same language, maybe, you know, they could have come to a more peaceful resolution. Then I wouldn't have such a um, wonderful book though. So uh, thank you. But <laughs> but on the, you know, it is kind of like a, an achievement that I that I set out to to get you know of, of getting people to understand each other and to to paint this realistically enough that people in the room or near the room or whatever would be able to say hey that's a new perspective I didn't realize that um, I guess it's just I hope people come away with like empathy portable empathy <laughs> that's a great point hey quick rant on your behalf oh so love I, it so so I mentioned the audio book it's like wait a minute she's reading her book. And, and it's like, yeah, you, you, you're, you're well-known, uh, planet money. You did a really good, and I'm not just saying that there's my rant is there is an idiot on uh, audible review about why the authors shouldn't read their own book. And I just thought, did you not really, I mean, again, you did a great mm-hmm. job. Was that Hard? Thank you. You, you probably oh, didn't. it's so hard. I mean, and I do read different, I think. Like, I don't read the way... So if you're accustomed to audiobooks and you get me, I can understand how that would be jarring. Um, I read, like, you know, kind of like a talk, I guess. And that's, like, what we do at Planet Money. And that's, like, I think more I like- useful. Like, I'm trying to port information to you. And I'm trying to express information through my voice. So you're actually getting... What I think you're getting in the audiobook is, like, I'm sending you how my sources sounded. So you're getting a little extra bonus material of like the inflection that I got when I was reporting the story. So to some extent, like, yeah, it's my own voice. It's, you know, the voice of a female person, which is agitating to some people. Um, and it's it's a much more casual. <laughs> I know I I, ha- I hate bringing it up, but sometimes they're like, you sound like a high schooler. And I'm like, well, um, I'm not in high school anymore, but thank you. I do think that um, that the casual 
read is different and drawing for people. But I really appreciate you saying that because it was hard. It was really fun. Um, but but it is, you know, I'm trying to communicate emotion. And sometimes that's that's a little bit too much for people, maybe. My last question. I ask this question to everybody. And if anyone gives me a hard time with it, one of my last guests mentioned a book about Gertrude Bell, who I would describe as the Lawrence Arabia of her time period, the female Lawrence of Arabia. So again, mm-hmm. I take these uh, suggestions of other authors seriously. So I, I want to be nosy. What are some of your favorite books? Okay. Um, so I just read Trust. It's a brand new book. And I kind of, my agent told me about it and I sort of didn't believe her when she was telling me about it because it's about, it's a fictional, it's a novel. And it's about like a major investment figure in the 20s, like all fiction, but like credibly written with beautiful accounting for like options and just the way financial market, it's just, it just rings really robustly true. Like it's beautiful. And it's, it brings an artistry to financial markets it, that is, I think, very difficult to achieve. Um, and so I just, I loved that. I read that when I had COVID a few weeks ago, <laughs> made my COVID time really nice. Um, that would be my my top most recent pick. Um, I'm really looking forward to Emily Flitter's book, The White Wall. It's about racism in banking. Um, I think this, I should have it around here somewhere. Um, let me look it up so that, that I That sounds um, great. It's 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 really good. I haven't finished reading it yet, but what I've read, I I literally had to get a pen out to start underlining because it was just and like starring things. And it's called The White Wall, How Big Finance Bankrupts Black America. And it's one of those things where you like, you know that already, right? Like, you know that that's like there's structural racism. We know that. But reading it is just it's so unequivocal. It's just so scientific. It's laid out. It's not confusing. And there's something reassuring about reading it. Like, okay, it's not this is real. Like this is okay. Reassuring might be a poor choice of words there, but it's like, these things are documented. This is not confusing. You don't have, it's a choice to be confused about this. You can just look at the facts and know something. So anyway, I, it's, it's a wonderful book and very authoritative and I'm excited for it to come out in October. Is there another book in you? In me? Um, not at the, I'm very tired, but I am, you know, it was, it was a, a long haul and now I'm like, wait, so people have free time. What do we, what do we do with that? How do we spend it? So, so I might, um, I might write another book out of not knowing what else to do with myself. Well, tell me as a fan. And by the way, thank you for just hanging in there because every time I turn around, you're doing this interview, that interview and, 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 and just, you're, you're very pleasant to listen to. And again, I'm a fan and thank you for this book. Uh, thank you for being on. Kind. Thank you. I really appreciate that so much. It's been, it's really gratifying to hear that after all that work. So appreciate you. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Mary Childs, author of The Bond King. What a delightful person to talk to. And of course, you can hear her regularly on NPR's Planet Money. One more comment about Bill Gross. I'm always interested in the shoulders great pioneers in their fields are standing on. So we've already heard about Ed Thorpe, the influence that he had on Bill Gross. There's also an economist. He was a disciple of Hyman Minsky, an economist who had preached in the 1960s, the 1980s, that too much calm 
too much stability sows the seeds of instability. And this is in the book. Mary goes on to write, people forget the bad times and reach a little too far and borrow a little too much. Isn't that true everywhere, even outside the bond world? And by the way, speaking of great shoulders, as a lifelong learner, whose shoulders are you standing on? Guys, we need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf.